The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange uh, from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Peter Tharlarsson, the EMEA editor. Uh, I'm your host for this episode. Today, I'm talking to Simon Freakley, the chief executive of Alex Partners. For those of you that don't know, Alex Partners is a global consulting firm which advises companies on a range of issues, including strategic planning, business transformation, and corporate restructuring. Simon has been CEO of Alex Partners since 2015. Before that, he was CEO of Zolfo Cooper, And before that, he ran Kroll, the corporate investigations firm. I'm uh, in rain-drenched London. Uh, Simon is in upstate New York. uh, And as is the norm today, we are conducting this conversation on Zoom, um, but hopefully that won't stand in the way of a good discussion. Simon, welcome to The Exchange. Peter, thank you very much for having me. No, it's uh, it's great to to hear you and to see you. Um, and, And even though obviously we're long way from each other. Um, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about. Um, I, I thought um, maybe we could just start a little bit by talking about, about what's happened to you and your business uh, in, this, in this crisis and in this lockdown. I mean, your clients tend to call you when they're trying to make changes or, or facing a big crisis. I mean, that applies to just about everybody at the moment. So how have you, how have you handled that? Well, thanks, Peter. I mean, Alex Partners is probably best known for its restructuring work globally, having handled some you know, very large restructurings like General Motors. But actually, as you know, uh, restructuring is really less than 25% of what Alex Partners does. The majority of what Alex Partners does is helping our clients, partnering with our clients with um, transforming their businesses, often at speed, accelerated transformation, if you like, as they try and position their businesses best in a changing and often disrupted market. So what we've been seeing um, before the pandemic was you know, industries like retail, for instance, oil and gas, that were very disrupted and having to make fundamental changes in their businesses, uh, doing things to best streamline their businesses in the face of disruption. Post-pandemic, of course, there have been some more Uh, urgent activities as some of those businesses that are less well capitalized than others have tried to best position themselves to survive through the pandemic and then come out the other side. And so there's been been a lot of repositioning going on, but fundamentally businesses transforming themselves at speed. Uh, Yeah. And so you mentioned corporate restructuring and I I take your point that it's, it's, it's about a quarter of your business, but, um, but obviously quite, pertinent at the moment there are a lot of troubled companies out there um what sort of i mean i don't know what do you say to a a a ceo who rings up and says uh you know kind of everything's stopped and um, i'm worried about whether this company's going to be able to survive right well in the very early stages peter uh, of the pandemic the the early calls that came in were people trying to make sure they had enough liquidity trying to make sure that they had enough cash on hand to make sure the business could survive and so there was a lot of scrambling being done by businesses making sure that they had cash flows in place uh, and sufficient of a landing strip to reposition their businesses a lot of people drew down on their credit facilities as we all know Uh, and of course interestingly enough some very large businesses are just not in the habit of doing cash flows because liquidity is not usually their problem they may be thinking about treasury management and how to make sure they have cash in the right bits of the globe uh, but they don't in normal circumstances have to manage cash flow and so those early 
calls are about can you just help us make sure that we have visibility on cash uh, sort of six weeks or so in when people had got through that it was really more about not only how can we um, preserve our business during the lockdown how do we position ourselves to make sure that we survive this pandemic as well as possible and of course for retailers that might mean you know how with closed uh, shops they could capitalize on online or omni-channel strategies. It was also then about, look, we need to be thinking now, and that was very much our advice to clients, we need to be thinking now about how to position our businesses for when we emerge out of the pandemic, because that's likely to be on some sort of a phased approach, and how do we do the planning that goes with the number of different scenarios we might be facing. I think even in the early stages, people realized that it was unlikely to be something that we just, you know, pop out of and go back to normal. What does normal or a new normal look like? And if there were, for instance, diff, um, subsequent spikes in infection rates, how would, we, um, how would we cope with those spikes? And so a lot of the work in the last couple of months, candidly, has been about that, restart strategies, uh, companies using the opportunity to streamline their businesses, reposition their businesses, and make sure that when we do come out of the other side into a new normal, that they're fit for growth uh, and are competitive in their markets. Yeah, I mean, we, we at Breaking Views have had lots of debates, as I'm sure you have and, and, and many others, about how the pandemic and lockdowns are going to change the world and what goes back to the way it was before and what changes, you know. And um, I noticed on your website, I was just looking through it before this call, and you had a, a nice or an intriguing term for, 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 for what's happening, which you call disruption as usual. Um, can you elaborate a bit on, on what you mean by that? Yes, thank you. Um, before the pandemic, we started to study disruption, uh, and we did that because much of the work that we were doing with our clients had this common denominator of clients facing significant disruption forces in their markets. Now, retail, of course, is the most obvious one, but many, many markets were suffering disruption caused by a range of different factors, you know, the availability of, you know, artificial intelligence and business machine learning, what that meant in terms of both capturing data and understanding the trends within it, how consumers, for instance, were creating their own ecosystems through their mobile devices, uh, and then working out how they wanted to make their purchasing decisions based on their values and whether they were consistent, for instance, with the companies that were offering the products. And so we looked at the common denominators of disruption across, in the first instance, five different industries. And we studied every public company uh, on the exchanges around the world with revenues over $2 billion and tried to synthesize what were the undercurrents of disruption in those industries and by proxy many other industries that were causing these headwinds and um, challenges to our clients and corporates generally. What then happened, of course, was that we headed into the mother of all disruptions, which was the pandemic in March. And so the pandemic accentuated uh, what was already for many uh, markets and corporates a, a disrupted landscape in the first place. And this, of course, has caused you know, a massive reevaluation as to how companies should use their resources, you know, how consumers do engage during a pandemic. And so, I mean, to give you an example, if you're a retailer, you say, well, of course, people with online strategies or omni-channel strategies must be doing fine because even though their bricks and mortar stores are shut, obviously online sales will be going up. Well, of course, what that disguises, Peter, 
is that for retailers to have omnichannel strategies, the cost of fulfilling an order online is much higher than the cost of selling an item in a store. So as uh, revenues go up or are maintained, EBITDA goes down because of the cost of fulfillment. If you're an airline, for instance, or a restaurant or something, a hospitality sector, um, corporate, the sale that wasn't made yesterday is never coming back. If you and I couldn't eat at a restaurant yesterday, we're not going to have two meals at the restaurant tomorrow. And so what it means for those companies that have lost those sales forever and how they then reposition themselves. And so what we're seeing in the US, um, which is where I live at the moment, but I think is generally true, is that people are trying to work out even in a new normal because I don't think we're ever going back to exactly how things were. What does it mean for a restaurant? What does it mean for a theater? What does it mean for a cinema? And these are the questions, of course, that we're all addressing now. Yeah. Uh, what, how do you think, um, what's your impression of, of, of how companies have handled this? I mean, obviously, their companies have been affected differently, as you said. I mean, if you're, if you're an airline, it's sort of existential. And if you're uh, you know, kind of a company that operates virtually, um, then, then, then you could sort of carry on more or less as before. But there also do, do seem to have been notable differences in the way that companies have, have responded to this crisis. What have you learned about sort of who was, who was well prepared and who wasn't? Well, I think one of the things that's become obvious to me, and I'm sure everybody, is that leadership has really mattered. So, leaders who have been clear or leadership teams who've been clear about what their plan is and how to execute it have really um it's become obvious that quality leadership in these times of extreme disruption are at a premium and so the strongest leaders i think have meant that not only have they had a clear plan that's been well articulated they've almost been their own chief communication officers but they've put their people uh, and their customers first and so some of the early i'm sure you've seen some of the early analysis of uh, employee sentiment during the lockdown has been that you know their own expression of the type of companies they want to work for in the future reflects how they think they have been treated during the lockdown period by their employers so i think leaders that have not only given clear market guidance in terms of what the plan for the company is, but also given very strong guidance and support uh, to their employees by putting the health and well-being of their employees front and center in their agenda as to you know, how they emerge from lockdown. And so even if they can do certain things, whether or when they do certain things, driven by their uh, employees' um, sentiment around how they come out of lockdown. So leadership I think has become has been critical that isn't a surprise of course because in any times of challenge leadership is at a premium but the best leaders i think have shone those that haven't been on the front foot with their communication or have been ponderous in their response i think that will become part of their legacy sadly in terms of their leadership position so leadership's at a premium i think also we've all realized that the um, the disruption that was being caused by the availability of technology, you know, online um, deliveries, etc. You know, what's, what's happened is we've had 10 years of evolution in 10 weeks that actually the, the ability for people to have rapidly moved into the adoption of new technologies uh, and new ways of getting goods and services has just accelerated enormously. So, uh, you know, 12 weeks ago, 14 15 weeks ago, you know, I'd never done a Zoom call 
you know, I was a neophyte on Microsoft Teams. You know, today I've already been on a Teams call, a Blue Jeans call, a Zoom call. You know, we're all becoming experts and doing, um, you know, video conferencing. And that's a proxy for the adoption that's been happening very, very quickly across a whole range of technologies. I don't think people will ever go back to buying in the same volume certain items from stores. I think that we've all got very used to getting our groceries online etc cetera, etc cetera. so i think this acceleration of adoption is is a permanent thing and even if we look at the automotive sector for instance you know the the adoption of new technologies around autonomous driving around electric vehicles that has also been accelerated by this so whilst there's still lots to be done in terms of developing those technologies people i think will be far more comfortable with the evolution in uh, transportation that was going to happen over a longer period happening very quickly. So I think we're seeing this in, in various facets. It took, took my autom uh, automotive, the automotive sector a bit, um, and it's, it's an area that you do a lot of work in and you publish some, some sort of forecasts and some research about that as well. Um, where do you stand on sort of what happens to the car? I mean, it, it seems there is a, there's a view that this accelerates perhaps the shift to, to electric vehicles, um, um, and particularly in some countries, uh, you know, I think in Germany, you know, they're now part of the stimulus is to subsidize uh, electric vehicles. Everybody says how nice it is that, you know, kind of when we had that period when there wasn't as much traffic, that the air was cleaner and you could hear the birds and all those kind of things. But on the other hand, um, it does also seem to be the case that um, people are going to be reluctant to be in sort of shared public transport and that that actually might lead to a, uh, a resurgence of the car at a point where the car was was maybe in decline how do you how do you see that playing out i think it's i think it's an excellent point and you know when i talk to our um colleagues for instance about you know how we move back into our offices 25 offices in 14 countries people rightly and understandably are anxious about what it means to get on public transport whether it be a subway system or bus system or whatever how they'll keep safe so i think we all have to we'll all have to understand how best to do that and, and in the short term of course being in your own vehicle probably is the safest option uh, if you can comfortably or easily park the vehicle when you get there i think that's one manifestation of it another manifestation of it is how how quickly we want to get on to crowded airplanes how quickly we want to stay in hotels how quickly people will want to take holidays and resorts um, you know, an extreme example is how quickly people want to get back onto a carnival cruise liner. Um, so I think there are all these different decisions that we'll make. As it relates to um, vehicles, obviously in the short term, probably there will be more uh, car usage for those people that have cars. In metropolitan areas, of course, the car parking facilities uh, are quite limited. So that will naturally contain, I think, the amount of additional um, sort of car traffic that we'll see on the roads. As it relates to commuting, I think in the I think in the medium term, then you know we will have to think about you know unless a vaccine comes out quickly. Of course, in a in a post-vaccine world, it is quite different because there's a confidence again about being in close proximity. But during this interim period between now and either a vaccine or a highly effective treatment protocol that makes everybody much more confident, then I think there's going to have to be protocols in place around, you know, whether people work every week, whether it's a week on a week off, whether it's two days or every other day, and how people then, the intensity of um, people on the public transport systems is mitigated so there can be some form of social distancing. So I think, well, that the toggling, if you like, that'll happen between now and 
a vaccine stroke treatment solution is something I think that every city and community is working out um, on a daily basis. Post the other side of this though, I think that the acceleration that we've seen in adoption of new technology will, will be a permanent thing. So I'll give you a, an example. There's been a lot of commentary over the last couple of years about whether Amazon or others could use drone technology to deliver packages. Uh, it seemed fairly fanciful two years ago. Well, now, of course, it seems pretty realistic that actually as long as the safety aspects of that could be um, could be managed, that actually if a parcel arrived on our doorstep by a drone rather than a FedEx van, that actually might that might be a better thing. So I think as an example, the people's acceptance of new technologies to mitigate some of the issues that we're now managing is uh, is significantly different than it was 14 weeks ago. Yes. Um, I mean, presumably you faced, you obviously faced some challenges in terms of managing your own business um, uh, in this period, uh, closed offices, restricted travel. Um, presumably it's normally you would jump on a plane and, and, and go and see a prospective client or a client and, and talk to them face to face. Now everybody's working remotely. How, how have you experienced that? How has that affected your or inhibited your ability to, to do your job? Well, it has been remarkable. I mean, I've, you know, like you, I've not got on an aeroplane now for, for over three months, which you know, I can't remember there being a three-month period when I didn't travel you know, in my adult life. I, 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 having said that, we've found, and I think many people have found, that actually, despite the challenges of physical distance and remote working, that many businesses, including ours, by the way, has managed to carry on really quite effectively. I mean, from my own firm, I'm, you know, enormously impressed by just how the teams come together and carried on serving clients remotely, but also, of course, our clients and some of the work that we do, obviously, with accelerated transformation or restructuring is typically quite hands-on work. It's just how effectively, not just our teams, but our clients have worked with us in making that fundamental work happen, happen on an almost exclusive remote basis. I think one of the challenging things for all of us at a personal level is just how we manage the absence of boundaries in these things. So rather amusingly, somebody said to me early on in the lockdown, Simon, uh, I thought I was working from home, but I find that I'm sleeping at work. And this whole sense of how an absence of boundaries means that actually the day can get very long uh, on the one hand, but also, of course, with video conferencing and calls that all of the downtime or lost time that used to happen with traveling or um, the gaps between things, of course, have now gone. So we start our Zoom calls on the hour or half hour. And in some ways, there's been, it's been a remarkably productive time, I think, for many companies. So I think at a personal level, working out what it means to be in a working environment from home or from a remote space has taken some adaption. I think many businesses have um, made that migration really quite effectively. The big question, of course, that everybody's dealing with, including us, is what is the new normal? So when we go back to a world where it's okay to be physically proximate again, do we ever want to go back to how it was? And I think that, you know, all of us are asking versions of that question. Uh, and of course, how that then plays out for commercial real estate, for instance, whether people will ever want to put thousands of people back into one building again, whether actually we've now learned 14 weeks in the US at least after lockdown as to how effective we can be working either fully or partly remotely, whether that will change working preferences or patterns. So I think the new normal will be rather different to the old normal, but we're all working out at both a personal level and also a corporate level what that means 
coming out of the other side and what, you know, how that might change our behavior, how it might change our preferences. But I think that one thing's for certain, it's never going to go back to exactly how it was. I don't think there'll be, certainly for some years, quite the intensity of uh, air travel again, because people have found that actually they can do rather a lot by video conference. And, um, and at least for ourselves, you know, we may not have to be on a client at a client site five days a week, whereas that was typically usual for our type of work. Yeah, no, I definitely, uh, I, I'm saving a lot of time not commuting uh, at the moment, although I don't really know at the end of the day where that extra time has gone. <laughs> I'm mm. not sure that I'm, I'm using it right. particularly productively, but um, uh, but it definitely it definitely does make a difference. Um, yes. I just want to come back to the to the to the sort of restructuring side of things. I guess particularly um, because you know one of the one of the striking things about this crisis is that a lot of companies have gone into it carrying. Uh, a lot of debt, a lot more debt probably than than they might have done, you know, ten years ago or something, and um, and and there's quite a lot of discussion about sort of a, a how those companies cope with the debts that they have, and b whether that makes them sort of more you know more reluctant to be in debt, have this level of debt in future. Do you what's I mean I know it's hard to generalize from from one industry to another, but what's your sort of feel about how how companies will think about leverage? Um, after all of this? Well, I mean, the private equity industry, of course, you know, loves leverage. It's part of how they make their money. Uh, and there's, you know, pre-COVID, there was something like two and a half trillion dollars of dry powder in private equity um, shops, coffers waiting to be applied. So going into the pandemic period, there was certainly a lot of private equity money looking for a home. And of course, you know, that would have resulted in quite a lot of leverage once applied. I don't think, honestly, Peter, that, you know, once we get through the extreme disruption of the pandemic, I don't think that it'll have a long term effect on leverage. I think once businesses are repositioned and of course there will be winners and losers, but um, there'll be there will be growth again. And those businesses will need to be supported by debt as well as equity. I think we'll see a return to the types of leverage that we saw pre-pandemic and let's not forget of course that you know what you know every crisis is different um, one of the differences about this crisis than the financial crisis is that you know we have largely well capitalized and well-run banks uh, going into the pandemic which we didn't have going into the financial crisis and so the banking industry the banking system is well set up in terms of its own capital adequacy and its ability to support corporates. And so I, I, I don't think it's gonna have a long-term impact on leverage. Now, does that mean that for the next couple of years, two or three years, people won't be having to reset some covenants and just make sure that their stakeholder group is supportive as they work their way out of this um, lockdown period and reposition themselves, of course. But I honestly, I think that it'll be a temporary rather than a permanent phenomenon. Yeah, I mean, you talked a bit uh, earlier about um, sort of companies, you know, leaders who who sort of were clear in their communication and, and, and had a plan. I mean, I don't know of any companies that had a plan for a global pandemic shutting everything down. It, it seems like very few people were, were prepared for that. Or, right. no, or, or, or were there? 
Well, uh, th there were very few. We weren't one of them, by the way. We didn't see a pandemic coming. Uh, but no, I did. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. What I meant was that, you know, once people digested the reality of what they were dealing with, how they quickly repositioned their businesses and had a plan and then communicated it. So, you know, there would have been all sorts of contingency plans, of course, in place for different types of um, extreme disruptions, but typically not a pandemic. But I think the best leaders, the, the high quality leaders, some of whom, of course, had to deal with some really, really difficult situations, did quickly reassess their situation, decide what the appropriate thing to do was to protect the enterprise uh, and the broader stakeholder groups and got onto the front foot in terms of executing and effectively communicating that plan. And I'll give you an example. I think Arne Sorensen, the CEO of the Marriott Group, did an absolutely excellent job uh, in taking some very, very different decisions in terms of the mass furloughing uh, of employees to protect the enterprise. And you know, on, you know is, um, has a significant health issue he's managing at the moment, well publicized, but notwithstanding that, he recorded a very personal and heartfelt video to uh, all employees of the Marriott Group explaining what uh, he was doing, why he was doing it, and why it was in the best interest. But it was done in such an authentic and personal way, but proactively, um, just with great integrity. I think it was a, emblematically, I think it was a terrific example of what strong leaders do in times of crisis. Yeah, no, that's that's um, that's absolutely true, and, and it's definitely sort of a, a crisis that sort of brought out personal uh, personal characteristics. I think, but but I guess what I was what I was getting at with the plan question, I, I, I don't think anybody really planned for this, but maybe the question going forward will be um, that ask corporate boards and so well well maybe you need to have a plan for this happening again at some point maybe not necessarily i mean you can talk about a second wave or another outbreak or something but more just sort of conceptually do you as a business need to be prepared for the possibility that you may have to shut the whole thing down completely for a period of you know three four five months well, I think the pandemic, you're quite right, has asked us all that question. Now, we as a firm, and I'm, you know, many, many businesses, uh, I would say all well-run businesses, you know, do do an annual, uh, at least an annual uh, risk review to map out on a heat map basis the types of risks that the, the corporate's facing, you know, and how to mitigate those risks on the one hand and also respond if incidents happen. And so we're all used, I think, to doing that type of contingency planning not many people had thought that pandemics were a significant risk and therefore hadn't planned for them but certainly people had planned for for other types of of incidents and so let's take um, the appalling events of course of September 11th I think that means that everybody is very focused on what happens if there's a terrible uh, incident security incident uh, in a particular city and what are the fallback positions and whatever and so you know, if if whatever reason there was a, you know, we couldn't be in New York, then what would be the other cities that uh, companies would operate from? The, the thing that people, most people hadn't thought about is what happened if every city went down in every country globally. And this, of course, is the most unusual feature of this particular circumstance, that in almost every other case, it wouldn't be something that affected the entire world. You know, whether, whereas if you have, you know, your your, your office in, Boston, Massachusetts is 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 experiencing exactly the same thing as your office in Birmingham, UK, because you know there um, because the pandemic is a global phenomenon. Now, obviously, in 
for the pandemic, the, the wave that's gone around the world has meant that different countries have been in different phases of this at different times and subject to reinfection rates and spikes, of course, we may then see, you know, um, repetitive waves of this in different places. But I think very few companies, honestly, Peter, had, had, had uh, anticipated and therefore planned for a worldwide shutdown of their businesses. I'm sure that it'll be on everybody's planning list from now on hopefully though it won't happen anytime again soon but it's i think most companies honestly were caught out by this and the best companies quickly assessed the reality of it and came up with their plan b's and c's to deal with what came next i guess so continuing on with this, this idea of competence i guess the other area where we seem to have seen a divergence in competence or different levels of competence is just in how governments have handled this into both in terms of handling the pandemic and then in sort of dealing with the with the economic consequences um i went do you think do you think that has how do you think that sort of plays through into sort of corporate decision making about uh about where to locate operations about how to organize supply chains about the, the, those kind of things or maybe about what companies have to do for themselves and what they can rely on uh, in terms of what, what sort of things they can potentially outsource to the mm -hmm. to the state. Um, do, do you think there's a reassessment there as a result of this? I think it's a great question and the answer has to be yes and of course what we're now dealing with is not just the impact of a pandemic, we're, we're dealing with the impact of a very very significant economic recession triggered by the pandemic so one led to the other but we're dealing with two, two complementary but different issues and so the dilemma that we're seeing in so many countries around the world you know particularly in the ones that we're both sitting in the US and the UK is you know what is the greater evil at this stage the impact on the countries of the recession the, the, the recessionary pressures on the economy or the impact on the countries of the health challenge of a pandemic and of course what we're seeing playing out in a daily basis on the news is the trade-offs that politicians are trying to make between how to mitigate the impact on the economy of lockdown, but also try not to end up with you know, future big spikes in, um, in pandemics and the impact on the healthcare systems of those countries. Of course, it's particularly pronounced in the US because we're in election season and the run up to an election in November. And so, you know, we're hearing on a daily basis, of course, from political leaders around the world as to how they're seeking to, to balance these pressures. But, you know, a number of um, senior politicians, I mean, you can said it just yesterday again, you know, that another lockdown is just not possible uh, because uh, of the impact on the economy. So we're seeing these, these, these trade-offs for corporates, of course, um, back to an earlier point we discussed where it's absolutely essential that, you know, the health and well-being of colleagues and their own confidence levels around re-engaging in an office environment or a client environment if they go to clients. Um, there's it's a balance and one has to make sure that the health and well-being of um, colleagues and um, clients, uh, customers uh, and broader stakeholders is kept front and center at the same time as uh, imagining and then executing reopening strategies. So I think every business leader and every politician is balancing these forces. And of course, what can be done isn't necessarily what will be done. Um, we need to work out what's possible, but also what's appropriate at any given moment. And so I think this is very much front and center, but the political realities are, I think, that no major economy will be looking to rush into global lockdown again. Uh, and then it's just a matter as to how we balance these two 
different but significant challenges. Yes, I think we're going to be living with this and, and the sort of knock-on effects uh, for for quite some time. Um, Simon, we're out of time, um, but um, I wanted to thank you for uh, coming on, giving us the benefit of your thoughts, and uh, and and I hope, I guess, that uh, um, some point in the not too distant future, uh, you will be able to emerge from uh, from upstate New York, and <laughs> and 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 we will be able to uh, actually meet face to face, hopefully less than. Uh, so two meters apart somewhere in the world um but uh, in the meantime uh, um you know thank you uh, thank you very much for your time well thank you so much peter for having me on your program today thank you cheers that's our show for this week thank you to simon freakley for his time and to our producer freddie joiner in new york subscribe to the exchange and our sister podcast the views room wherever you get your podcasts you can also check out our views every day at breakingviews.com and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition of The Exchange. <laughs>